Yes, a star is born. And in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. My name is Drea Clark, and this week I am joined by my constant companions, starting with Ms. Kristen Lopez. Kristen Lopez here. Hello, everybody. And then on the other side of the country, we have... Samantha Ellis. And then this week, we are very excited to have an extra special guest with a very personal tie to this film. So I would like to welcome Mr. James Duke Mason. Hello, Duke. Hello. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Well, we are thrilled to have you, and we're very excited to dig into 1954's A Star is Born, which one of the stars of that film is, of course, Duke's grandfather, James Mason. And I'm sure that we will discuss that and any uh, Hollywood insights in this film that is packed full of Hollywood insights. So I think this film is particularly interesting to us and to the film community at large because it's been made several times and had different iterations and I think it culturally represents so much of what's important during each of those adaptations but also especially in my rewatch this time just what this film has to say about Hollywood is to pardon a pun from another film evergreen because there's so much Hollywood insight like I could do four hours talking about the role of publicists that you glean from watching this film. So we generally start off with everyone's background or connection to the film. So maybe we we can do that with my fellow ladies first so that we can land on Duke and hear about your connection to A Star is Born. I've seen this movie several times and I can tell you it's the first version of this story that I ever saw. And I'm going to just flat out right now say it's the best version (laughs) that exists out there. 37 is fine. What Price Hollywood, which is actually the original original, is good. The Barbara one is, oh God, it's Barbara. And the Lady Gaga one, it's not A Star is Born. It's the not Norman Maine story, but you know, it is what it is. People like it. It's got good music. So yeah, this one holds a special place for me because I think more than anything, not only is it a very inside look at Hollywood, it's also a very inside look at Judy Garland, who was really kind of blazing a comeback trail at the time when she made this movie. She was relatively healthy, probably her healthiest in her life at that time. She'd had a lot of very public struggles. And this was really a story that drew a lot from her own life. I mean, we can talk about the ways that this movie calls back to her childhood and her struggles with alcoholism. There's a a moment in this movie that never fails to make me sob because it's not Esther talking about Norman, it's Judy talking about Judy. 
it's a brilliant, brilliant film. I will never say ever that Grace Kelly deserved that Oscar. Nope, never gonna say it. She didn't deserve it. Judy for Sam's like shaking her head. Nope, nope. I am team Judy forever and always. So yeah, I adore this movie so much. I'm so happy we're gonna be talking about it with people who have different thoughts. I know Sam was very concerned about how we were gonna take this, but that's why we have three people for today on this podcast, because like not everybody agrees on classics, nor should they. They should all agree on classics existence, but not every classic. All right, so I'll jump in with my experience. I will say I've seen What Price Hollywood, and I, I would say, though, I'm the most familiar with the 1937 version. And I'm pretty particular with the 1937 version because that, to me, is so my era, and it's just what I'm the most familiar with. Janet Gaynor, I'm just a ridiculously huge fan of. I think she was so talented and so powerful in that film. And this is actually my first time watching the 1954 version all the way through. I mean, of course, it goes without saying I'm a big Judy Garland fan. I'm actually an even bigger James Mason fan. I'm familiar with all of his films really like all of his big ones we were just talking before recording about pandora and the flying dutchman and north by northwest and the seventh Vale, and and i adore all of those films so it was really cool to finally jump in and check this one out i'll just come right on and say it i prefer the 1937 version the 1937 version is my favorite i just love the two strip technicolor and as drea was saying this movie really perfectly shows old hollywood in the 1950s But I'm a 1930s old Hollywood girl, so just seeing the the 37 version, I just absorb it more, and it just visually appeals to me the most. Yeah, I think it's good for Duke and all of our listeners to have a reminder that Samantha is, of course, a time traveler, and (laughs) somehow was stranded here in now 2020, but definitely is decades away from where she is meant to be. And I do want to say, to punctuate this fact, you guys can't see it, but her couch looks like something out of 1937. So I am convinced that she lives in a two-strip Technicolor celluloid world that has not gone past maybe 1955, which is why Sam doesn't watch anything after like 1963. (laughs) That's a good point. That's a very good point. I think one of the things we'll obviously get into, like our thoughts on the film itself, aside from the the actors, but watching this, I feel like the music distracts and I feel like the the central heart of the plot and the story of the film just kind of it goes over its head compared to the 37 version, which is much more dramatic and straightforward and for lack of a better word, meaningful. <laughs> I hate to say, oh my gosh, I'm making everybody cringe right now. But <laughs> I do think that Judy and, and James Mason's performances are really strong, really powerful in this. And especially in, I would say, the second and third acts of the film, it tones down the grandeur of it. Because if they keep singing and dancing and meeting that big Technicolor spectacle of it, I think it would really take away from the meaning of the story. Uh, but luckily, luckily it's toned down the more the film goes on. It becomes more somber and serious. So I, I, I definitely enjoyed it the more I watched it. And by the end, I was, I was really into it. It's, it's definitely a strong, amazing film. But I still have my personal preference. And Grace Kelly deserved that Oscar. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
Well, thankfully, we don't have any say in re-giving out these Oscars or things could get real contentious. Duke, I'd love to hear from you. What's your, both your background with this film in particular and also in knowing your grandfather so much through performance. And it's such a unique way to have a, that not many people have, to have that connection with someone who was so meaningful in their life that they know in such a specific but different kind of way. Well, it's just, it's really interesting because even as a kid, I would watch him in many different films at different stages of his life, you know, both as a young man and then as an older man, um, different types of characters. I mean, everything from Captain Nemo, um, which was one of the first films, you know, I watched as a kid because it was Disney movie, kids movie. So I saw him in so many different ways. And this film, I watched it pretty young. But obviously, it had a lot of very complicated themes and topics that, as a kid, you don't necessarily understand. And I've always felt that this was among his best films. And there's an amazing history to A Star is Born, because when Judy and Sid left, the producer and her husband at the time were trying to cast the role of Norman Maine. They went to a bunch of different people, Humphrey Bogart, Frank Sinatra. Harry Grant was the well. first choice. Harry Grant. Cary Grant, right. And, you know, and of course, I'm a fan of all of them, and I think that they would have done an incredible job. But one thing about my grandfather that I think is really unusual, especially for actors and leading men of that time, was that he was really vulnerable and unwilling to go there and willing to sort of show that side that I think a lot of, you know, machismo men the leading men of that era were not willing to do this film. I mean, he showed the same sort of vulnerability in Lolita, you know, even at the end of A Star is Born, actually, I don't want to, I shouldn't ruin it for people who haven't seen it, but, you know, there's the scene at the end that's very emotional and very sad. And, you know, you can see how tortured he is. And it's almost, even when I think about it, I get emotional and my dad gets emotional because it's a really heart-wrenching thing to watch. And you see the side of him that I think a lot of men of that era were not necessarily willing to show. So I've always felt that it was one of his best performances and that he had a unique quality that I think was particularly suited for that character. And I look, I've seen the 1937 version myself, and I loved it. I thought Frederick March, not only was he insanely good looking, but he was like a great actor. And, and he also had that a little bit too. But his performance was a little more aggressive. Like his, uh, his, the character of Norman Maine in that film is a lot more sort of aggressive and angry when he gets drunk. Whereas my grandfather's character was a little more sort of sad and I hate to use the word, but like pathetic. So it's a different performance, but I love the 37 version. I've never seen the Barbra Streisand version, oddly enough. You don't need to. I just, I don't know, it looks, I mean, I love her, but it does seem a little, from what I've seen of it, it seems a little melodramatic and a bit, and I'm not really into the, the type of music from that particular time period. I've seen the Gaga version, and I love Lady Gaga, and I actually, I love Bradley Cooper, too, but without going too into the weeds on that one, I, I, I definitely have my issues with it. And I think, actually, your the, the way you phrased it when you said, it's less the star is born and more than not Norman Maine is what you said. Yeah. But I liked it. There were things about it I liked. But even putting my grandfather's performance aside, I, I think a star is born. For me, that, that version is the best because for so many reasons. But J Judy's performance, which was incredible, 
the directing of George Cukor, who was one of the best, most celebrated directors of that era. The music, the score, the vision, the cinematography, the way it captured Hollywood, you know, visually at that moment. And I'm a huge fan of, and, you know, I just love that era, the 1950s in Hollywood. So for me, I definitely, even putting my grandfather aside, I would say that this is my favorite version of the three that I've seen. If I could create one, I would definitely put James Mason with Janet Gaynor. I think that would make a really interesting story. If I could put James Mason in the 1937 one, that would be perfect. Because I think he, he does give a better performance than Friedrich Mar- March. I think he's more of a tragic figure. And he plays and the more, role a little more, with more subtlety. Yeah, more subtlety, 100%. Like, the, Frederick March, was, it was very kind of over the top, even with you know, his, him being that when he was playing drunk, he was a lot more exaggerated than my grandfather's character. He, you could just sort of see the on his face the internal turmoil and torture going on within his head. And like I said, he, he was good at playing that kind of role because he did it later on in Lolita. And there were a lot of... And I think that's why, actually, later in his career he kind of turned away from Hollywood films because he was never really, I don't think he ever really even wanted to be a leading man. He was much better at playing sort of eccentric character actor type roles. And I think that's what he really enjoyed versus trying to fit into a traditional mold of what a leading man is supposed to be, like a you know, super macho, confident. That just wasn't natural to him because he wasn't that kind of man. From what I know of what my dad has told me and you know, people knew who knew him. He was a, in a good way, but he was a very sort of eccentric, odd kind of guy. Just because, you know, he was English and he was totally against the Hollywood studio system. He was one of the very few actors in his time that, you know, was a free agent and didn't subscribe to the you know, traditional uh, way of doing things. So he was always sort of out of the box. And I think that that was kind of reflected in a lot of the roles that he t- picked and the way that he um, played those roles, those characters. Anybody who can participate in a film like The Last of Sheila is utterly <laughs> so. Anyone who can participate in The Last of Sheila and play another child molester. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Like that, that movie is just brilliant. Yeah, it's for so good it's one of my fa- That's another one of my favorites of his. And I just remember when I saw that as a kid, I mean, I was probably, I was young when I first watched that movie. And so that's another example of like, I didn't fully understand it until later on because there were so many different adult themes and things going on there. But even back then, I loved it because I was just like, this movie is absolutely nuts. Um, and future episode on the last of Sheila, everybody. (laughs) I, I could talk about the men in the tight white pants. Of the of last of Sheila for days, hot Ian McShane, take me away. Something that you said about your grandfather in A Star Is Born, his vulnerability. I think one of the most lasting things to me about this film that I've realized more as an adult rewatching it, and also someone who then, like, since I would have first seen any iteration of these stories, if you are someone who has been involved with an addict or has had addiction mm-hmm. present in your life, how strongly that through line comes across mm-hmm. in this film. It's, to me, one of the elements that makes James Mason's performance in this so riveting because generally addicts are incredibly charming people. Like if you are functioning and you're still working through things, it's because you're winning people over all of the time. And I think he 
towed that really fine line of being that kind of inherent charm and getting away with things, but also more and more as it comes out and we get into this more somber third act, the, just the darkness of that and like how unrelenting it is. And it's always, it's so fascinating to me when you hear about the actors who passed on this role because like, oh, I don't want to play like a washed up alcoholic actor. Like you should. And if you aren't, maybe you see too much of yourself in that. But I, I think that his combination of having the charm and the emotional vulnerability of addiction is so, so resonant. And it also makes me aware of, oh, they must have been more aware of how addiction affects people back then than I would have thought because they certainly weren't treating it in the same way. Yeah, they were willing to go there on that issue, which back then, you know, when it obviously then in the 50s, Hollywood was pretty sterilized in terms of like the things they were willing to show. And I guess Samantha, I think, made a great point about how the movie definitely takes a super dark turn like towards the end. And but then I think that's why it's such an emotional experience to watch it because, you know, it goes from being sort of a lighthearted musical to all of a sudden, whoa, this is heavy. And, and also a quote that came to mind after what I talked about a couple minutes ago about how he was kind of unusual for leading men of that time was there was a Martin Scorsese quote for, well, because Martin Scorsese was a big James Mason fan and actually did a retrospective on, of his work not, not too many years ago uh, in New York. But the quote was, Mason had grand style and great cool. He was a hero. He was, however, a hero out of his time. That's the best kind of hero, perhaps, but it doesn't make the heroics any too easy. And I think it's totally true that he, I always, on the one hand, he was sort of an old school traditional gentleman. But on the other hand, he was kind of a time traveler. You know, he was, he, he was more like the leading man of like, let's say, the 60s or the 70s or even the you know some of the leading actors today who were less who fit less into the mold than the most of the leading men back in the you know back in the 40s and the 50s yeah it's something that's really amazing to see especially in the context of realizing that he was not the first choice and if anything i think he being the the kind of last choice to sign on might have helped him because he he also was the most distant from the production I mean, if you if you really think about it, this was Judy and Sid Love's baby. And then Cukor was kind of brought in for the ride. And he endured so much from having to deal with Judy's hypochondria and her, her issues with filming this. That, like, when the movie was finished, Cukor left. He went to Europe, took, like, a couple months off, and then immediately started doing location scouting for his next movie, which was Wani Junction. Like, he was done with the project. He could not handle it. And, and so I think Mason really got the benefit of being able to give a performance free of the, the drama, of the behind the scenes. That's not to say that he probably didn't experience drama having to work with Judy, but he didn't have as much to lose, I think, in the grand scheme of things. But when you look at who else was cast, I mean, Cukor really wanted Cary Grant. He had worked with him three times. He read the entire script to him, and Cary Grant loved the role, but he wanted to travel. He was married at the time to Betsy Drake, and he just, he didn't want it. And he'd also turned down around the same time Rowan Holiday and Sabrina. 
But he also didn't really want to work with Judy Garland because he had heard a lot about how unreliable she was. And it tore Cukor's friendship with him. He never forgave him for turning it down. And then they wanted Humphrey Bogart or Sinatra, but Jack Warner didn't want either of them. Judy Garland had suggested John Hodiak. They had previously worked together in the Harvey Girls, but Hodiak didn't want to do it either. And Stuart Granger was the front runner but he couldn't deal with how Cukor directed. And when you look at all of those names, I mean, Bogart and Sinatra have that that A-list stardom, but at the same time, they also come with their own really ingrained persona. You expect certain things from a Bogart or a Sinatra movie, and you aren't going to get it here. Hodiak and Granger were not A-list names that people would be like, why is that person paired opposite Judy Garland? James Mason's perfect. Because he's just as uh, as recognizable a name, but he doesn't overshadow Garland, and he doesn't have a persona. He doesn't have this kind of, like, I can only do gangster films. I can only do these films. He could do every type of film. And I think that works for a guy, for a character that is so used to being on top and what happens when he's not anymore. More importantly, what happens when the woman he's working with that he loves, that he's married to, is more successful than him, which really at the heart of The Star is Born is the biggest problem. You've seen it in all of the iterations. It's what happens to a guy when the woman he's in love with is cooler than him. And, you know, in some cases, it just, and I think that's what changes throughout all four iterations. You feel for his Norman Maine when Vicki Lester becomes a big star. You're not hating him because you're like, oh, you can't handle a woman who's more famous than you. It's my biggest problem with the Bradley Cooper version. It's like, Bradley Cooper's character kind of comes off like a dick because you're like, oh, you can't handle that she's Lady Gaga? Like, really? But here you understand that these two people do truly love each other. Like, you get that reciprocity. It's just that they can't coexist because of his own personal demons and those issues that, unfortunately, with addiction, you might transcend, you might not. So... So I think he works so perfectly in that regard. I do want to say, too, that um, I feel like James Mason is also a perfect choice because I feel like it's almost a natural progression from Friedrich March. I feel like he still has that old world refinement to him, but he has that more natural 50s vulnerability that he could bring to the role. And yeah, I, I agree. He's like, he's famous enough to hold the role, but not overshadow Garland. And yeah, because like I said, this is like my second time really trying to watch the film all the way through. I really got onto the toxic masculinity aspects of it this time around and compared it to the other versions. And yeah, he handles it a lot better. Yeah, and you know, I think he really developed a strong and like real life affection for Judy Garland. And I think, you know, I've listened to interviews of his where he says, you know, everybody else was so hot, hard on her. And, you know, he was like, what do you basically, what did you expect? And that ultimately, you know, he, he really respected her, I think, as a, as a, as an actress, as a, I think he even said he thought she was a great comedian, that she, you know, she was up there with Chaplin as like one of the great on-screen performers. So I think you really, I think he loved, I respected her as a, as a professionally, I think you really loved her and had a lot of affection for her. 
And I think, you know, he was not an ego-driven guy. He didn't want care about being a leading man and all that. He was always, he was a real artist. And so I think it was very easy for him to be like, you know what, maybe, you know, Sinatra or someone like that would have been like, I don't want to compete with Judy for top billing. And he was very happy to let her have, you know, the, the spotlight. And I think that's a reason why... You know, he didn't even go to the L.A. premiere of A Star is Born. He let her have the glory to herself because a better film, because, you know, it is it is a Judy, it's mainly obviously Judy Garland's film. But I think that quality of not being driven by trying to trying to compete with her, I think it just shows how much he actually genuinely respected her and wanted this to sort of be her moment. But so I think, and then I don't know if you know this, but he actually delivered her eulogy when she died in 1969. He was there in New York, gave her eulogy. So, I mean, they had a very genuine affection for each other in real, in real life. And, and then later on, when, when my grandfather uh, did a national tour for the re-release of A Star is Born, Liza... Manelli and Lorna Left were there, and my dad and his sister were there. So this is like a genuine family bond that has gone on for a long time in real life. And I'm I'm still friendly with Lorna Left, and I've met Liza. And so, you know, so I think, why, why, whereas someone like Humphrey Bogart or Frank would have been like, no, I want to be the center of attention. In this case, I think he was happy to see the spotlight and also he really respected her and loved her as a person. I think all that comes across in the performance as well. Like it's innate in his character and it allows for the Norman Mains in this is someone that it's not just like they have a very believable, intense, loving relationship as like a sexual romantic couple. But there's also such a mentorship from the very beginning. Like the first time that you see them, their whole long, never ending first evening together. And part of it is the year that it was made. But there's also he's not handsy with her. He's not following her to after hours clubs and bringing her home and like doing all of these things so he can like try and get a piece of her. He's enamored with her and her talent and it's cooked into the script but just how he plays it like dude i don't see frank sinatra restraining himself like when he like brings her home at the end of the night like there's not weird leaning there's not like touching there's such just a difference in terms of how this version of norman mains is seeing this woman and the potential that she has and that it, it transcends just like a crush and it's cooked into the script because they talk about like oh you know you're doing this for of course there's a broad behind it or whatever but i think that his innate sort of respectfulness it comes across in in that performance and i think it's one of the reasons that as he gets jealous of her success because we've also seen him as someone who admires her talent and wants her to do well we see that his jealousy is complicated even for him there's never a point where i think he begrudges his wife what she's doing he just wants to still be doing that himself and that distinction is so important to why you care about the story and why the end of it is so heartbreaking because you as a viewer if you don't also want Norman Maines to be successful by the end to get his star back then you lose a lot of oomph and I think this kind of vulnerability or sensitive performance lets you sustain your sympathy even when he's doing horrible things like slapping her at the Oscars. 
I do love the fact that exactly what you bring up, he's enthralled by her talent. I mean, when he walks in and sees Esther performing The Man That Got Away, I mean, not only is that scene utterly breathtaking, it's one of Judy's best songs. I mean, just the power of her voice. But the way he's enthralled by it, that he is just like, damn, this woman is amazing. And I think that to tie it back into how this movie is really about Judy talking about herself, that was often the most frustrating thing with a lot of fans and a lot of people that knew her was that she was so amazingly talented. And the fact that she struggled so heavily and people were saying, why would you want to ruin that voice? And, you know, I think that that was hard for a lot of people to reconcile with too, is that she had so much talent and yet she wasn't happy in in a lot of ways. And I think that that also comes through in, in how much she cares. It's just, it's so amazing to see you don't get relationships like that in film anymore where it's not one person trying to dominate another person. It's just two people trying to coexist that have very real issues and want things to work. I mean, that's the hardest thing about this version, I think, more than some of the other versions, Lady Gaga, is that, like, you understand these two people so desperately wish that they could make it work and the sad realization that it's not going to, that no matter how much they care about each other, it's just not enough to deal with something that is broken. Like that's the heart wrenching element of this is that neither one of these two people is inherently bad. They're just really effed up. And I think um, 100%, I think two things. Um, first of all, I completely agree with you that the man that got away, I think is well, that scene is one of the greatest scenes in film history. I mean, it's almost hard to describe, like how I, I, every time I watch it, I get chills. Every time I watch that scene, for for sure. And also, yeah, I think the comparison to Judy in real life and Norman Maine, and when that scene when she's crying, you know, when she's wearing the straw hat and the uh, when she's on the in, in, on the set in her dressing room, you go, oh my god, that right there. She's not, she's talking about herself. And that was another scene where it was, we were just like, whoa, this is some intense stuff. And so, yes, yeah, that time, and unfortunately served as sort of a, not premonition, or you know what I mean, a, a preview or forecast of what was to come, sadly, for, for her later in life. Yeah, that, that sequence especially, it's the moment where I just, I don't understand how they didn't give her the Oscar. Maybe it's what we keep seeing a lot in film today, which is, you know, oh, it's just her playing herself, and that's not hard to do. But that sequence where she, and it's just a beautifully written sequence too. I I don't think there's enough credit given to the script of this movie, but where she's exposed herself, you know, she's not wearing any makeup and she says she hates when he lies. She hates when he drinks. She's waiting for the other shoe to fall out. She says, sometimes I hate him. And I hate me too, because I failed too. And you're just, you're watching that. And it's so hard not to see that as her talking about, I fail myself. And knowing what she had gone through to get this film and how much of a comeback this was for her. I mean, it's a moment, I cannot watch that sequence without just crying. Because it's really an acknowledgement of her own failings that she unfortunately never overcame. Mm-hmm. It's also that speech to me is like the entire Al-Anon program is packed into that speech. And she does actually have a ton of makeup on then because she's in character and has like those big 
it blows up the whole scene because she looks kind of ridiculous. Her wig is like way up her head and has these little fringy pieces. She has the straw hat that Duke referred to. She's got these big freckles and this eye stuff. And yet the emotion of what she's doing is so raw and the contradiction of those two things. And for me, it's actually, because I will agree with some of Samantha's controversial statements, but to me, I love the man who got away. I love that whole thing. But the number one most affecting musical moment in this is going from that scene and then Judy walks back to stage to finish shooting what she's done. And there's like a musical coda where it's on her and her face at the beginning of it, just one shot is like kind of destroyed, kind of destroyed. She's getting the countdown, the music started and then boom, her face goes back into performance mode and she finishes singing just the very end of that song. And to me, when you're integrating music into a film that's not a musical per se, those are the moments I want. I want to see how the music interacts with these characters and shows where they are in their world. And and, do you know what I mean? That's giving me like an insight to their worldview, not just like a fun musical moment to watch. And I think when we see him watching her first perform when they meet and he's the very first scene right when he wanders drunk onto stage and she like makes a bit of it and you're like oh you get their whole relationship he's already a drunk she's already trying to make it work it, there she's already talented and it's actually a mess but they don't see it and that works for me and then the him falling in love with her works for me i do agree though it does lose pace for me I could watch the musical sequences on their own for hours. Like the whole long Lost in the Trunk, whatever it's called, the section. Love it. As you guys know, I could live inside the musical sequence of An American in Paris, and we've already disagreed in that. But in this film, I do feel that not all of the musical sequences feed into their relationship or the narrative as much as I want them to. So they do sort of like thud for me. Oh, yeah. I agree that, and I, you know, and I look. I say this as someone who loves Judy Garland and loves, loves, you know, loves so many of her films. But I, I agree that, I, in fact, I read somewhere recently that they added "Born in the Trunk." I think late. I think they had they went back and shot that after they had already finished the rest of the film. I think because they were like something's missing. And so they thought, oh, let's insert, like, however long it was, this gigantic, long musical sequence in the middle of the movie. And it kind of takes away from, not that it's not amazing, but it takes away from the the pace of the film, for sure. And to me, actually, the, the musical moments in the film that are the most amazing to me are actually some of the ones that are the most subtle. Like, It's a New World when she's singing to him yeah, is like, I think is such a beautiful moment. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think the film could have been, if they were going to take away anything, not that, this is a controversial statement. I'm not saying they should have, should not have included the sequence, uh, the Born in the Trunk sequence, because it was beautiful and amazing to watch. But on the other hand, they were going to cut out certain things to, to improve the pacing of the film like I don't, I don't think they should have taken away some of the other like uh, dialogue sequences that they cut from the film. That they should have taken out some of the extended musical sequences that take away from the plot. 
Yeah, Born in a Trunk was actually supervised by, by Roger Edens, who was the musical impresario of the studio. who worked very closely with Judy Garland. Hugh had left. And they did cut this. I mean, this was the most expensive films made in Hollywood at the time, $5 million. And Warner Brothers famously cut it against Cukor's objections, and he was incredibly upset with how they had, had kind of hacked the film, which is why, if you watch most newer versions of Star is Born Now, it's the quote-unquote restored version, where they have taken um, stills and the audio and then pieced it back together. Some people find that very distracting. I personally think it's, it's the only way to get the most comprehensive version of this movie. It does make it really long. It's a, you know, three-hour movie. But the Born in a Trunk scene, you know, I, I, I understand its reason for being there. Again, it's to remind us that Vicki Lester is Judy Garland. You know, much of that Born in a Trunk element is about her growing up as part of the Gum Sisters and how she was always born for the stage. And if you're not really in the know about Judy Garland, you're just kind of like, well, what's there? Why, why is the point? It's also there to justify CinemaScope. You know, you need that big showy number. This was supposed to be television. It was supposed to go on the road as a big roadshow presentation. So you, much like most movies, and it's my biggest problem with 50s musicals, is there's always an extended musical number that probably doesn't need to be there, but it's there because they have to justify that extra ticket price to get you to stop watching the Dick Van Dyke show or something. So, I mean, I get it. It's not great, but I get it. But to go back to Drea's point about Judy Garland's transition as Vicky slash Esther when she's doing that that performance it really benefits if you know Judy Garland's struggles because I'm sure that was again something she had done her entire life come off the set be berated for something you know told she's not good enough and then have to go back and smile and sing and it's something that a lot of meta films of the 50s 60s into the 70s inside Daisy Clover which you all know is one of my favorite kind of in-the-know Hollywood movies has a very similar scene where Natalie Wood's character, Natalie Wood was also very similar to Judy Garland in a lot of ways, has to kind of put on that happy face despite despite having some issues. And I, I find it fascinating that a lot of these moments in film where film's talking about itself and the, the on-screen struggles of an actor and having to go on set, usually focused on women, you know, and how women had to have that duality of, of on-screen and off in a way that most men didn't feel, which I find really, really fascinating. I want to talk Oscars real quick because... You know, I know we're going to yell. Oh, go on, Sam. Can I squeeze in one little point? Okay, so I do want to mention, touching on on Drea's point especially, I think it was really interesting. One of my issues with this film, as opposed to the 1937 version, to me, and where I I think part of, like, the central point of the story kind of passes over its head, the movie is called A Star is Born, and I feel like the 37 version focuses so much on the fact that Janet Gaynor going in is not talented. She has to work very hard, and Hollywood basically molds her into something else, arguably something that she wasn't. Whereas I feel like the 1954 version is, a star is basically already there, just with a different name. Like, Judy Garland is every bit as talented to begin with. She, they, they even go as far as to change her look through the Hollywood system just for James Mason to change it, change it back again. So, like, there's really no ugly duckling turning into a swan, no building of talent. It doesn't really address the Hollywood machine as much. 
I sort of agree with you, but one of the things in terms of the subtlety of it is this movie, it's not so much, you're right, there's not like the training montage where Judy Garland learns how to finally sing, but what it does is what I think is very real in this world. There are many, many, many people out there with talent who are talented performers, who are talented singers, who are whatever. What they may not have is either star power or a craving to be a star. And the big arc that we see from her and that the Norman Maine's character unlocks is identifying that she is special with what she has and that she should make her life about that because she's completely happy being like a road musician and just using her talent because she enjoys doing it and it probably comes easy to her or whatever. But the shift of it is no, you should be part of this firmament. You deserve to be here. And like she says the whole, which is absurd to me, the idea that he like compliments her singing and she's like, no one's ever said that to me before. I'm like, have you always sounded like Judy Garland? Like, why are they not telling you that all the time? So I think there's there's something really subtle about what Hollywood identifies as that it factor as a star factor and the people who are willing against all odds to like keep doing it and that's also them adding back in that kind of awkward photograph storytelling the reason i think that part is important even though it's awkward to look at is because it's about her committing to you know what I want to be a star. It's not that I want to be a successful, I don't want to be a singer who lives on it because she's already living as a singer. She wants to be a star and she's willing to do whatever it takes to get there. And to me, that's the arc that comes across. Well, I think also too, it's the emphasis on aesthetic Hollywood. The fact that, and it's again, it goes back to Judy herself. Judy Garland did not look like a Hollywood star. She started out as a, as a girl, a teenage girl that was a bit plumper than, you know, Sandra D and some of the other young actresses that were coming up. And so I feel like that sequence of when she's getting the the makeup and the hair and they're like, hey, have you ever thought about going blonde? You know, it's the, it's the element of she does have talent. She has a lot of talent, but she doesn't look like a star. And what Norman Maine finds so amazing about her is that he's able to tell her, like, you don't need to look like a Hollywood star your talent shines through regardless. And if you look at what women in the 1950s were starting to transition into, you weren't at Marilyn Monroe yet, but you were getting there and and your Jane Mansfields and this emphasis on otherworldly beauty. You know, Judy Garland looks like any regular woman. I think that's the emphasis is that stardom, what does that mean? And, And what happens when you don't look the type? And there's a scene, you know, there's this, the scene when he is explaining, uh, I wish I remember the exact words because it was phrased so perfectly, but when he's talking to her and trying to convince her to quit her day job or, you know, her, her band uh, singing job, he says to her, you know, stardom or it's, it's that, he, he, I forgot the exact wording, but it was you know, where he basically says, it's not just about being like a beauty, you know, or, or a, you know, it's, it's that quality, it's that something that, uh, stardom is that, just that sort of almost, it's, it's impossible to quantify or to explain in words exactly what that is, but you just have it or you don't. And he was saying that, you know, regardless of whether she was a traditional beauty or not, she had it. And of course she did. And, you know, in real life, it was that. And I do think it's funny about how it's like, hello, like, 
that's that's the first time Judy Garland or someone that can sing like Judy Garland has been told that they used they used to have an amazing voice. So, but but yeah, I mean Judy Garland was just this. It's amazing to think that that kind of talent came out of this person who was you know. If before she opened her mouth, you would think she might be kind of shy and sort of, you know, and quiet. But in fact, she was this insanely powerful, strong, talented person. Yeah, I want to throw out the Oscars real quick, because obviously it's a controversial series of decisions that happened there. But this was nominated for six Oscars in 1954. 1955 Oscar ceremony, of course, but it was nominated for Best Actor for James Mason, obviously Best Actress for Judy, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration in Color, when they were differentiating between black and white and color, Best Color Costume Design, Best Original Song for The Man That Got Away, and Best Musical Score. It did not win any of those nominations, which is shocking to me but that's why I have what did win um so that we can essentially argue about whether that's a good thing or not so in terms of actor James Mason was nominated alongside Humphrey Bogart for the Kane Mutiny Dan O'Herlihy for Robinson Crusoe Bing Crosby for the Country Girl does anyone anybody want to hazard a guess at who won off the top of your head well, I thought it was uh, Marlon Brando, right? Yep, it was Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront, right. which, I mean, I get it. It's 1954, <laughs> 55, the Blacklist and the McCarthy eras in full swing. Why not tell the story about a guy who testifies against his friends? It's a controversial decision now. I don't think it had much controversy at the time. And it is, I mean, it's Brando. You all know how I feel about On the Waterfront because... That should have been John Garfield's Oscar, but he died communism. Thanks. So. (laughs) I think, I mean, if we really had to compare those, I would agree with the decision that the Academy made in that case. If we're really talking about each singular performance that was nominated that year, Humphrey Bogart for me. I think Kane Mutiny is his best, but... I think that should have been in the supporting actor category. I don't think that's a big enough performance. Category fraud. It's still happening to... Yeah. (laughs) But if I had to pick which of those performances is the best, I'd say Humphrey Bogart. But I think that should have been a best supporting actor win. Okay. Controversial. I did not know that. I would say... He, I think his performance was incredible. Like I said, I think it was one of his best. Definitely, no question, a tough category that year. I mean, there were a lot of great performances to choose from. So, you know, I don't, uh, I don't fault the Academy for, for giving, giving that to Marlon Brando. But, you know, he did win, uh, my grandfather did win a Golden Globe for his performance, which I actually have right here in my um, living room. So, but no question, that was not an easy category. And then in that case, the one that I actually, not to get too far off in the weeds, but the one that I actually do think was unfair was my grandfather, you know, was nominated three times. And the final nomination was in 1983 for the verdict. And I mean, Lou Gossett Jr., don't get me wrong. I mean, I actually never saw that film. I think it was Officer and a Gentleman um, that he got nominated for or won for. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've heard it was a great performance, but my grandfather was, what, 70 two or three at that time and it was clear that he was and you know getting towards the end of his career and he was great in the verdict that one i think was was a little bit you know i wish they had made a different decision on that of course but but the night but stars born i mean that was a very difficult year uh, in terms of the competition 
Oh yeah, definitely. These Oscars are certainly the more controversial, I think, than most. Of course, Best Actress was nominees were Judy. She was not there because she was having her third child. Her only son, Joey, left. Dorothy Dandridge, who was the first African-American nominated for the Best Actress in a Leading Role, keep in mind, she would not win and it wouldn't be until the 90s when Halle Berry won for Monsters Ball that we would get a Black woman as the Best Actress lead. So, you better, Hollywood. Jane Wyman was nominated for Magnificent Obsession. Audrey Hepburn was nominated for Sabrina. And the winner was Grace for The Country Girl. You've heard this. I've talked about my issues with this win before. It's real easy to be a hot girl and dower yourself up and put some glasses on and ruffle up your hair and play a drunk and win an Oscar. We still do it. We still give the plain Jane role Oscar. It happens. We also give it to the ingenue. I mean, I, I know it. I've watched enough Oscar ceremonies to know, like, there are ways, if you're a woman, to get that Oscar. Grace did. But Judy freaking almost killed herself trying to win this damn Oscar, and she did not get it. And I've seen The Country Girl. I've watched The Country Girl more than once. You're never going to convince me that that's an Oscar-winning role. It should be a nominee, no question. But if I was going to give it to anybody else, I'd have given it to Dorothy before I'd have given it to Grace. Audrey would have been fine. Anybody else. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that sounds like horrified right now. Samantha, re- rebuttal? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cracking the knuckles here. Okay. Let me start off by saying I am very biased. Grace Kelly was the first actress I ever completed the filmography of. She's very near and dear to my heart. I've seen every single one of her films, you know, most notably The Country Girl, I would say. The thing is, I think it's so important that Grace got that Oscar because she was never taken seriously as an actress. Nobody really ever looked at her and they just thought she was pretty. She started out as a model. Even today, even with that Oscar in her hand, people say she was just pretty. There was no substance to her. But I think Alfred Hitchcock says it best. She's like a snow-covered volcano. And you can see it in that film. Like, her eyes in the scene where William Holden is, like, holding her, it gets me. It gets me every time. Like, you can just see the emotion behind them. And again, I'm ridiculously biased. I only just watched The Star is Born all the way through. (laughs) So it's hard for me to to give a really good argument. And that's another really tough year because I agree with you about Dorothy Dandridge as well. I freaking love Carmen Jones. And I would even say Audrey Hepburn and Sabrina is classic. Absolutely classic. And I wouldn't be upset if she got the Oscar for that either. You could have given it to any of them and I would be over the moon. No, and Grace Kelly, look, no question, Grace Kelly was a great actress. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of so many of her movies. I mean, To Catch a Thief, Rear Window, I think, too, right? I mean, she was mm-hmm. she was great. I mean, she was a great actress. So I don't uh, have an issue with, with Grace. I definitely think Judy, personally, I think Judy deserved an Oscar for, for that role. I mean, I, I, I just think, you know, unfortunately... She was never, you know, given the claim that I think she deserved, actually for similar reasons, and that I think people didn't really take her seriously as, like, an actress. And I think they also, there was a lot of probably built-up resentment in the industry from people who, you know, she had put them through hell or, you know, uh, 
you know, on, on, on different productions. And I think the way I think they were like, we don't want to acknowledge her after everything that she's, she's a terrible reputation she'd give it, you know, she'd accumulated. And they're like, we're not going to reward her for, you know, her years of causing problems. So I, I do think it's sad that she never really got the, the due that she deserved. But I agree that Grace Kelly definitely also deserved more respect and more credibility than she, than she got as well. I'd love to segue off that into the last thing that I want to make sure we squeeze into this conversation because I know we're nearing the end, which is the idea of a star is born to me as someone who works in the industry and then as someone who's watched the industry be portrayed on screen for so many years. A star is born so acutely showcases how... Um, studios take advantage of star power and how they find people disposable once they're past that power and how every single thing in their lives is manufactured or protected sometimes many times to their benefit but also sometimes having things in their personal life exploited and like I said I could talk about just the publicist in this for so long and the handling of his whole arc his whole resentment of Norman Maines there's this great section of their when they decide to get married and the studio hears about it immediately starts like whirlwinding how they can take advantage of it and then instead they sneak off and just have the city hall marriage and the publicist finds out and is complaining about it and his complaint which in his head is like totally valid but is also how the system still works which is I have covered for Norman Maines for so long like the amount of scrapes I've gotten him out of the amount of headlines I've like cajoled people to not talk about he owed me being able to publicize the good stuff and i find that this film how it shows just how complicit and locked in is was so fascinating and such a true thing that runs throughout all of it and exacerbates all of the emotional stories so much one of the other i agree one of the other more sad tragic scenes in the movie is when Jack Carson approaches my grandfather when he's sitting at the horse races and my grandfather's trying to you know, be sober and he just berates him. And that's a devastating scene because you just see you know, the Norman Maine character is just so tragic and pathetic and he gets knocked to the ground and it's just like, it's a, it's a horrible scene. But yeah, I mean, the way that he just, the, the guy now that the guy, now that Jack Carson can be tell him what he really thinks, he just says basically, you know, after everything I've done for you, you know, I'm done covering for you. And you know, you're basically a joke and pathetic. And yeah, it's, it's a hard scene. That's another hard scene to watch. Is there anything else anybody wants to touch on before we close out? I did want to throw out that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was also nominated for numerous Oscars that same year. And it did win the set decoration win that A Star is Born was also nominated for. And in case people were curious, which song won over The Man That Got Away that Oscar year? The other nominees included The High and the Mighty for the song The High and the Mighty. White Christmas was nominated for the song Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. Susan Slept Here was nominated for the song Hold My Hand. And the winner was Three Coins in the Fountain from the film Three Coins in the Fountain. Now, I hate I mean, that movie so no. much. 
I mean, you can't go up against Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn, who were big names in the music industry, but you had freaking Gershwin lyrics. I'm just never gonna understand. And score as well, if you're curious what one score. The other nominees were Carmen Jones, The Glenn Miller Story, There's No Business Like Show Business, and the winner was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. So... I'm not as mad about that. I'm actually surprised that Seven Brides wasn't nominated for more because I adore that film. 1954 was a great year for my grandfather. I mean, in general, but for my grandfather in particular because in that same year, he did 20,000 Leagues playing Captain Nemo. He did Star is Born. He also did Prince Valiant, which is not a great movie necessarily, but... He got his handprints and footprints, footprints of Grandma's Chinese because of that uh, film. So like, you know, it says on his um, handprints and footprints at Grandma's, which I've been to, you know, quite a few times, it says Prince Valiant. It says James Mason, Prince Valiant, that has the date. So 1954 was a great year. And that, but also, interestingly, that was sort of the, the beginning of the end for the leading man chapter of his career because... Soon after that, he started playing more character, you know, type uh, roles, like even bigger than life, which is a Nicholas Ray film he made in the mid 50s, was kind of an offbeat, darker film. Then even North by Northwest, he played the villain versus the traditional, like the main Cary Grant leading man character. Then he did Lolita, which was a weirder sort of offbeat role. And then after that, he really sort of dove into Back to Europe. He did a lot of British and European films. So I think that was sort of his peak year, 1954, as a leading man. Um, and then after that, he that sort of began the next stage of his, of his career. I agree with all that. I like that. And of course, don't forget to mention The Last of Sheila, because we'll bring it up whenever yeah. we can. <laughs> Last <go>. of Sheila <laughs> is one of those movies. First of all, uh, it's like the, the gayest movie of all time, because... I mean, Herbert Ross and Tony Perkins wrote it. And Sondheim, no, Sondheim, yeah. Even Sondheim and Tony Perkins wrote it, which is like, what? But it's like, but I mean, it's amazing. But talk about campy and like, I mean, way over the top. And the, I mean, the direct, the, and the acting was so brilliant. I mean, that's a movie that unfortunately doesn't get the kind of credit or acknowledgement that it, that it deserves because it was so weird and so... It's different. getting a little bit. It's getting a little bit more since Ryan Johnson admitted that that was his inspiration for *Knives Out*. So it's it's slowly getting some love. And, oh, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. yeah. It's a, it's a big. He's a big fan of it. So he talked about. He's talked about regularly using that as inspiration, which just makes *Knives Out* an even better movie. But you know, and not to to get too far into the the future, but. I will be presenting on our road to 100 an interview with Diane Cannon, and we do talk a little bit about Last of Sheila. So that'll be fun for everybody to listen to later. I'm not giving a date. It'll be out later. (laughs) I also just want to mention the more James Mason movies we throw out into this conversation, the more I could just sit here and just talk about his career all day. Uh, He's so brilliant in A Star is Born, but I could just list films and be like, he's great in this, and he's great in that, and he's great in this. 
One of the coolest things has been, you know, I'm actually, there's a very cool woman, older woman, uh, who I've been working with for a couple of years. You know, I don't know if the book will ever actually come to fruition, but she wanted to write a book about my grandfather. And, and so she and I have sort of, for me, it's not just about wanting the book to get written. It's also a great excuse and opportunity to connect with people that he worked with throughout his career. And so one of the coolest things has been that I, I've gotten to sit down and have meetings and calls with people like Richard Benjamin and Diane Cannon, speaking of which, and I'm trying to think who else, Julie Newmar, who else? I mean, I mean, we, we've also had like phone calls with everyone from you know, Helen Mirren, Jeff Bridges. It's just a really cool opportunity to connect with people. But I actually got to meet Richard and Diane in person. And I mean, D- Diane Cannon, talk about an amazing woman. I mean, she's... It's she's, just overwhelming uh, how amazing she is. <laughs> overwelming, that's the right words. I didn't know how to phrase it, but that's exactly what it is. Overwhelming. I watched The Last of Sheila with Diane Cannon and Richard Benjamin doing the intro. So they showed up at the Egyptian and they talked about that and it was so much fun. So future Patreon goal, y'all. We'll we'll maybe talk about Last of Sheila sometime in the future because it's so good and it needs to happen. Maybe we'll have, hopefully, fingers crossed, we can get Duke to come back and and talk about it with us because that would be awesome. That sounds amazing. I'd love to. And I was going to say, you know, just because I thought people might be interested to hear it. Star is Born has always been like one of those movies that meant a lot to me and you know was significant to me. And you know, one of the most amazing full circle moments about five or six years ago was maybe actually it was more like seven or eight years ago now. Um, I have some mutual friends who are also friends with Lorna Loved. And you know, my dad had met Lorna a bunch of times, you know, back in the 80s when they did the re-release of A Star is Born. They did some events together. But I had never met Lorna, and our mutual friends were like, hey, Lorna's performing in Palm Springs next week. I don't know if you want to, you know, come, come see her. I'm, I'm sure, you know, we'll, maybe you can go backstage afterwards and have a few minutes with her. I was like, of course. Sure. So we go to the show, and in the middle of the show, she stops, and she says, you know, my mom, when she made A Star is Born, she said that she could never have done it without her co-star, James Mason. And James's grandson is here with us tonight. You know, would he, could he please stand up? And then she said, this one's for you, James. And she performed The Man That Got Away. And it was pretty amazing, I have to say, and pretty emotional. But then afterwards, I went back and we spent the whole night together, went to dinner and had this amazing uh, together and, and had a conversation about the Lady Gaga stars for it, which was really funny because she actually went to the premiere with um, Barry Manilow, who's, I guess, a close friend of hers. And then, you know, they, they, yeah, I think she loved it. I mean, I think they also had the other, you know, issues or things about it that they felt a little bit weird about. But I think Lauren is a great person. I've met Liza. And so anyway, I just say that because that was like a pretty special uh, coming full circle moment for me. And and so I think the movie still matters a lot to to her and to Liza and to me and to my dad. And so this movie is, it's a really special movie to us. And I think, you know, hopefully I think to a lot of, to a lot of other people as well. Ticklish Business is one degree away from Lauren the Left, y'all, and I'm pretty, pretty dang excited about that. You have no idea. <laughs> well, I think that this is a great place to close out, and Duke, you were so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories and insights. Where can people find you online, and is there anything you want to promote? Any projects, like you mentioned the book, or any, just, I know you're an activist. I know there's plenty of things going on. 
Yeah, uh, my my Instagram, my Twitter have this are the same. It's twitter.com, Instagram.com slash James Duke Mason. And yeah, I mean I'm I've been a writer for a long time. I write mainly about politics, but I, I write about pop culture for a bunch of different places. Right now I write mainly for a website called LGBTQ Nation and which is it's mostly political stuff, but I also have an Instagram weekly interview series that I do called Duke's Download, and I've interviewed everybody from, I'm on my, in fact, today I think will be my 12th episode, I do it once a week, and today I'm actually interviewing Max Muchnick, who is one of the co-creators of Will and Grace, um, but I've interviewed everybody from Melissa Rivers to David Furnish, Elton John's husband, to the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, so i just very eclectic diverse, you know, list of people. But, but yeah, so people can check that out on my Instagram. And so, yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got a few things going on. Just a few. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to my ticklish trio buddies, Samantha and Kristen. Always good to chat films with you. This is part of our Road to 100, and it's been a very fun series. And we're very proud of ourselves. Dang it. So this closes out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can find the podcast on Twitter at at ticklish underscore biz, B-I-Z. We're also now on Instagram, thanks to Kristen, which is our handle there is just at ticklish biz. Skip the underscore entirely. And then for myself, you can find me on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And I also host a contemporary podcast called Who Shot Ya? Kristen, where can people find you? You can find me at journeys underscore film. And also we do have an email. If you want to email us your thoughts, that's ticklishbiz at gmail.com. Samantha, how can people find you on the intraweb? Well, my Twitter is at Classic Film Geek. My blog is at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month at Classic Movie Hub. Excellent. And I really enjoy those, by the way. Your cooking recipes. It's been forever. I made a Jimmy Stewart recipe and I just haven't written about it yet. It's actually been a couple months now. I feel really bad. But with the COVID thing, I hope people understand. Yes, I think people understand and you have a good number of them they can revisit. I recommend they do. I'm not much of a cook, but you pack them full of all sorts of insights. And also the recipes are normally pretty ridiculous. So even if you don't make them yourself, you'll, you'll still get a delight out of reading them. You can download ticklish business wherever you get podcasts you can also get exclusive pins early episodes and entirely new shows on our patreon at patreon.com slash ticklish biz and please check us out and thank you for listening